listener, it's me, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Oh, Del, today. You're listening to The Bookworm on fabradiointernational.com, where I brought to you in association with Starburst magazine. You can find both those on the internet, you can find us on the internet as well. But of course you know all of that because you're listening to us right now. So, <laughs> Hopefully you know that, if well, you're listening to us right now. <laughs> well, you know, you might be reading our minds, you might be a distant alien race trying to, trying to understand what was, civilization was like back then. But anyway, that's gone a bit strange for a Sunday. <laughs> coming, moving on. Moving on very swiftly. swiftly. Coming up on the show, I will be talking about The Dead House. Del? And I'm going to be talking about Wool today by Hugh Howey. Uh, but coming up next, we're going to be talking about exciting books that are coming soon. the world 24 hours a day this is Radio International So if you're listening to the show, you you might want to get onto the webcam and see us, but unfortunately you won't be able to see us because we're not there. Nah. Um, Why? Is, Why aren't we there? Uh, What's be, happened? Uh, we'll be off to visit wildlings in far, far Scotland, probably, my, myself and uh, other members of the team. Um, so we're not there. In fact, this is this is a pre-recording. Ah, oh, I'm less scared now. Yeah. So rather than <laughs> rather than doing book news, and typically when we do these sort of things, something really exciting has happened in the world of books, and you'd be like, why aren't they talking about that thing? It's because we're not there, yeah. and we don't have a TARDIS. Well, we do have a TARDIS, it just doesn't do time travel. So, <laughs> it's a rubbish TARDIS. It's an ARDIS. That sounds like it's an agricultural TARDIS, though. It's like, ARDIS. ARDIS. Potatoes and relative dimensions in space and time. Anyway. Ah. Oh, maybe it's a pirate. Maybe the Corsair had an artist. Yeah. Artist. Artist. Moving on. <laughs> oh, sorry. So we're going to do, uh, we're going to talk, what we normally do in these situations is we talk about books that are coming soon. Um, so let's talk about Amada. Talking about ours. Uh, Amada is a book by Ernest Klein. Uh, he is better known for Ready Player One, which is a kind of a treasure hunt. Um, Ready Player One is being turned into a movie by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Amada, I love the idea of Amada because essentially there's this kid and he's you know daydreaming at school and then suddenly Zach Lightman gets abducted by aliens to fight an alien invasion because there's these UFOs coming from space and he's sitting there going, isn't this the plot of Last Starfighter? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that John. You know, I'm sure I've read a Terry Pratchett book about this as well. Only you can save mankind. This is terribly familiar. As he's running around trying to save the world, so that's a that's one level of meta beyond the normal level of meta we get in these sort of stories. But it's a young level, but it sounds really good. And, and the main character is called Zach Lightman. Zach Lightman. You already know that this is going to be an adventure with a name like Zach Lightman. Fantastic that, setup, just in a name. Uh, that, that's why I am always going on adventures because my name is Ed Fortune. Ah, yeah, yeah. Doing all sorts of exciting adventures, and most mostly I can't talk about them though because people just think you're crazy. <laughs> um, so. Let's see, uh, The Fall by R.J. Pinero is coming out. It's a sci-fi thriller about a guy who jumps out of a plane 
um, in some kind of halo jump science thing. It's like the, the furthest out from space. How far can we drop a person? Is the, the science experiment seems to be. But rather than ending up back on Earth, he ends up on an alternate Earth where his wife hasn't divorced him and his life isn't awful, but also he's been dead for a while. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so he turns up and everyone's like, well, aren't you dead? And he's like, obviously not. Um, and he tries to put his life back together and then wackiness ensues and the government's trying to kill him and it, it sounds it's like... a little um, bit Capricorn 1. It sounds very Capricorn 1. It mm. sounds like complete nonsense, but also sounds like a lot of fun. It, uh, it could also though, be very sad if that's the only reason his wife hasn't divorced him is because he's dead. I think there's a there's a whole chain of events and I think we get mm. a kind of parallel. Oh, like, sliding doors. <laughs> like superposition and we get that kind of sliding doors style. How many copies of superposition have you now been sent? Oh, several. Mm. Um, several. Um, we, we keep... <laughs> I should explain that publishers will send us various books and because we are Starburst uh, sponsored and because we are Fab Radio sponsored and because we're an entity in our own right sometimes we get like free books saying <laughs> sometimes can Mr Fortune please review these th- this book and be like I'd love to and they get free at the same time it's very odd but we try and make sure that we get as much coverage of the, that work as possible if we can uh, he said very nicely uh, Media Unnamed there's a book I wouldn't mind getting my hands on Tales of Clyde Parker's Nightbreed. A little while ago, we talked about this on the show ages ago. They had a submissions window for people who wanted to write Midian stories. Um, Midian, if you don't know the setting, the setting of Midian, it's essentially it's, it's a monsters party. It's a monsters ball. The creatures of Midian are all sorts of weird outcasts. Um, not that night, Nightbreed is a metaphor for anything. No, honestly, it's not. It's not about you know a young man who discovers a set of fellow outcasts and then realizes that he can do whatever he wants within his own community, and that there's a whole bunch of people who are outside his outside his small town who are nearer to the city who actually think the same way that he does, and he can go off and have his fu- his own fun. It's not a metaphor for anything at all. Honest. No, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So Midian Made is a collection of short stories about the, the Midian characters. It looks quite exciting. I've been looking forward to that for a while. Um, I think it's really good recently how many people have been... Um, more people nowadays are just willing to admit that they really like short stories. That's awesome. It's also it's commercially interesting because mm. you know, when you're on a train, you, just, you don't have time to write and read an entire novel. You don't want to read an entire novel. You just want a, a short fiction buzz Yeah. whilst, whilst you're waiting on stops. Um, there is also so so. Why then do you still get s- relatively few short book collections, short story collections? Mm. Um, it's interesting because mostly these <coughs> those things are on things like um, you know, there's lots of fan fiction websites and there's lots of other s- short fiction websites that handle that side of things. Mm. So are you thinking Wattpad? I'm thinking Wattpad. Mm. I'm also thinking the way mm. the market's diversified. I mean, mm. there's a lot of small press short stories out there. Yeah. but it's not like a, a just a, a giant. It's not widely published really is it like kind of Neil Gaiman's one of the only ones I can think of like what an AS buyer like are the the main people I can think of that actually have books of short stories that actually sell really well but that's I think because of name really and I have noticed that with major publishers what they tend to do is they have one or two big name authors amongst a whole load of other short story collections Mm -hmm. and it's normally not the big name author that's the most interesting short story in that collection Mm. in general it's normally someone who's like mid to upper tier or on their way yeah um because I know George R. R. Martin's put together some like short story anthologies from other writers and things as well, and then you've got stuff like Eleven Doctors, Eleven Stories, and and they sell well. Like pe- there is a, there is a market, and it's interesting. John Oliver from Solaris Slash Abaddon is always putting together some really cracking short story collections, and I really really like them simply mm. because 
he's kind of like a DJ. He likes to mix the <laughs> stories up, and you kind of get like a common theme. So you'll have you'll have one story about abandonment, followed by another story about someone trying to find their place in the world. And you're like, okay, that works. And I kind of I've read this story, and then this story makes sense after that story. And we're slowly but surely seeing the short story collection editors actually spending more time on the commission, spending more time on getting bespoke short stories, and actually mixing it up, which I really like. I now just have images of authors sitting there going, get ready for the drop, and then (laughs) (laughs) the drama occurs, and while the drama's occurring, they're one hand typing while waving the other above their head. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that what the Red Wedding is, the infamous Red Wedding in uh, Game of Thrones? (laughs) Ready for the drop! Boom! (laughs) He's your favourite character, dead. I'm relatively sure that's inappropriate. (laughs) Shall, shall we talk about Dinosaur Lords? Shall we? Oh yeah, no, please, can we? So, uh, a book coming out in July, the end of July, uh, by Victor Milan, described as Jurassic Park meets a Game of Thrones. <laughs> See, you're stumbling over your words and I know why you're stumbling over your words. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all know why I just stumbling over his um, words. In a coming issue of Starburst magazine, you'll get to read an interview about people who write specialist dinosaur literature. But this is not... <laughs> specialist. specialist. Can you hear the speech marks? <laughs> but this is not what the dinosaur lord is about. It's not, um. not that sort of dinosaur story. But the, it's also described as Jurassic Park meets a Game of Thrones. So so it could be. It's, it's got men on the back of velociraptors, men and women on the back of velociraptors and dinosaurs with swords attacking other dinosaurs and men and women on the back of dinosaurs. Why don't the, the velociraptors eat them? I, I don't How know. do they get the saddles on? Maybe They've not they, thought this through. Maybe they ask really nicely. <laughs> Excuse me, please. Thanks. I, I, I Maybe we've bent the dinosaurs to our will. Uh, I don't know. It's a gritty reboot of the Flintstones. That's what it is. Oh, <laughs> I don't want the Flintstones meets Game of Thrones. You see, there's, 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 there's so much that's so strange in the Flintstones, but that is a discussion for another time and place. Well, the thing is, Victor Milan is better known for uh, writing Harlequin books. Oh. So, so it might be Jurassic Park. I'm not entirely. <laughs> you know. uh, somebody's made that, haven't they? Uh, yes. Yeah. Kids don't Google that. Whatever you do. Yeah. No Google. No. No. No Google. No. Yeah. I've read it. <laughs> I, 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 in fact, I have read that novel. Anyway. Um, Did you write it? No. <laughs> Damn it! I should have done. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, Half a War by Joe Abercrombie. Um, the the lovely Joe Abercrombie has finally finished his Shatter Sea series with Half a War. Uh, we'll find out more about what Father Yabby's up to. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the Annihilation Score by Charles Stross. I like, I love the Laundry series, actually. Big fan of the Laundry series. If you are not familiar with the Laundry series and you want to find out more about the Laundry series, they are some novellas on the Tor website that will drag you into. Do not start with Equoid. <laughs> Short version, do not start with Equoid because especially you know, if you're like, oh, you know what, it's an hour before I go to bed, I'll read Equoid. No! No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> I uh, feel like Laundry Series is something that's been coming up a lot in conversation recently for me. I don't know why, just the last few weeks. I feel like everyone, everyone is mentioning it. It's because many of your friends are nerds. Mm. That is true, yeah, actually. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's really popular amongst All nerds. your friends are nerds. All my friends are nerds. Mm. And How did I not realise until now? And, and you're a big fan of stuff like Supernatural and the like. Yes. So, uh, and it's you know it's British people dealing with the supernatural in a very <laughs> kind of like okay you're a horrible vampiric monster. First, would you like a cup of tea? 
Oh, it's British then. It's very so British. British. Oh, it, it's um, the laundry is a, a department of the government. It's a branch ah, of the government. Okay. So, so they work in a very kind of civil service sort of way. So everyone's on pay grades. You know, <laughs> they're, they're surrounded by squamous horror from beyond the stars, but like it's okay because they can claim overtime on that. It's not a problem. It's very, very English all the way through. This is the first uh, laundry book that concentrates on Mo rather than Bob, because um, most of the stories are from Bob's perspective. This is the first time we actually get to so learn more British. about Mo. <laughs> Bob, he's a civil servant. <laughs> and uh, Christy Golden has written a Star Wars book called The Dark Disciple, um, which will tell us all about uh, wannabe deaf goth uh, Asai Ventress, apparently. I like Asai Ventress normally, mostly because of the the costume design and the character design, um, and the fact that you don't actually get that many female Sith lords in the Star Wars universe. But then you don't get very many interesting women in the Star Wars universe. But hopefully, they will change that. Cause I, would I would assume so because Disney are on a big yay ladies kick, aren't they? So, it, it, hopefully, that's something that kind of became a stipulation. Hopefully, make the women crossed. better. Fingers crossed. Or uh, exist at all? Yeah, but then again, this was. A long, long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. yeah so maybe it's just the, like the zeitgeist. <laughs> a long, long time ago, the galaxy goes far, far away. The patriarchy is still there. Yeah. Anyway, shall we? Um, shall we move on to a bit, Ruby? After Smash. This is Fab Radio International. Starburst Magazine. Starburst Magazine. The world's longest running magazine of sci fi horror and fantasy. Get the latest news, features, interviews, and reviews from your favorite genre. Available from a newsagent near you or download to your iPad today. This, this is Fab Radio International. When no one will believe you, you become the liar they think you are. That is one of the opening lines from the book of the Dead House by De- Don Kertugik. Kertugik? Kertugik? I'm very sorry if I've got your surname wrong. Anywho, uh, the Dead House is coming out very shortly, and it's mm, it's an interesting novel and it's an interesting bit of darkness. Um, please note that it's called the Dead House. It is not the Death House. There have been a number of books which involve death and houses. This is the, the, the most recent one. Um, <laughs> it's aimed at um, a, young, a young adult uh, audience. Uh, 25 years ago, Elmbridge High School burned down. Three students were killed in the blaze. 20 were injured and one, Collie Johnson, disappeared. For two decades, little was uncovered about what became known as the Johnson Incident. Right, okay, so this story is all about Carly. And Carly also has uh, another half, shall we say. So we have Carly and we have Caitlin. And what she claims is this. During the day, she is one person, and that person is light and lovely and fluffy and a bit shy and doesn't, you know, isn't rebellious. And then during the night, there's another person, uh, a kind of a dark half, shall we say, who is running around um, smoking cigarettes, being rebellious, kissing boys, and, and getting up to nonsense. That's not fluffy. It's not particularly fluffy. She's she's all dark and spiky. And th- this girl is... Um, her, her parents have died in a fire. From what we understand, something horrible has happened to her family. She's all on her own some. 
um, and she's she's undergoing therapy um, because clearly your doctor's gone. Um, actually, the fact that you think you're two people is not normal, and maybe <laughs> you, maybe you should get some some help. And I'm here to help you. Um, on the other hand, she's like, well, no, I'm I've always been like this. I've been like this before the incident with my family. This is not what's happened. You know, this is not. A stress response i am in fact two souls in one body that's how that's how i've always worked that's who i am stop trying to you know stop trying to oppress my individuality sort of thing isn't this isn't this genuinely a thing that uh, genuinely exists uh, it did, um, there is a split personality disorder no no i've seen a thing about this on csi and, yeah. right, okay. i do i don't think many people express it as i have two souls mm. just sometimes you can have two people um, the, same brain. the book actually does deal and talk about identity disorders, okay. And and, ex- and it's quite good in the fact that it breaks it down and explains how you know we used to think it was called multiple personality disorder, and now we think it's dissociative dis- mm. identity disorder, and so on. And the the doctor character, the psychiatrist character, sits down and kind of without it being too expositiony, mm. actually sits down and explains it to you quite well and quite quite plainly as to what's going on and what he thinks going on. She also has a friend. Connie has a friend who is a Scottish witch. It's the best Ooh. way to describe her. Um, and you know, she comes from a family of, of essentially, um, uh, you know, travelling community who are all a bit witchy, and they they come from the islands. And you know, part of, part of their stomping grounds are the Orkneys and this sort of thing. And they have their own spiritual beliefs. And she's like, oh, oh there's something going on there. And this, the the at the same time, the. Um, uh, at the same time, Caitlin thinks that she's also got a, another evil spirit that's trying to influence and control and change her mind and you know make her do the darker things as well. So we've got this person who's two souls in one body, apparently, and then you've got this evil and malevolent entity that, that's trying to get involved as well. So that's the setup, and that's pretty much the, the, all the way through. That's that's you know these two characters. Chimerism. That's what I'm trying to think of. Is Chimerism that... is an entirely different mm. thing. Oh, okay. But that's the thing I was thinking of. Chimerism is when you have um, two two different DNA traits. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, Ignore me. I'm just wrong then. Um, but no, this is not chimer. Actually, interestingly, I no that that isn't in there. That would be an interesting twist. But anyway. Mm. Um, no, n- never feel bad about asking questions. Always, always ask questions. <laughs> so, um, is it any good? It's all right as a story. It's it's got some very nice setups. One of the ways that they they do fit, do this is it's because it's supposed to be a, like an account of the past and explaining to you what's happened previously. Um, there's lots of kind of therapy notes and um, you know bits of camera footage and radio interviews and conversations and diary notes the story isn't told from one perspective it's told from lots of different points of view and lots of different things it's like someone's carefully and carefully and slowly built a an account of what happened to this woman and what happened and why this horrible disaster occurred and what caused it to happen it's really hard to kind of go into too too many details without you know, without breaking the story, as it were, because a lot of it is about mm. the shock and the reveal. And slowly but surely you learn more as more characters are unveiled and more ideas and more twists and turns. It's a psychological drama. It's slow. Um, because it keeps changing focus all the way through, because, you know, we'll have a, like a diary entry and then we'll have a, a bit of camera footage and then we'll have a, a bit of a, a doctor's kind of journal response and then we'll have maybe a police report and this sort of okay. thing. Okay. It's, it's, it's kind of like got a watchman thing going on. It, it, yes, but there's the, the narrative is less... It, it, is, the narrative is, is less clever. 
okay. than, than say the Watchmen because the Watchmen's full of because it's a graphical medium of the Watchmen. There's yeah, lots of things going on, and it's it's hard to be as clever as as Watchmen. Um, and it, you know, in some places, it suffers from being a bit of a blunt instrument. What does work is that it is haunting, it is scary. It does try a little bit too much to kind of be ooga booga scary. Yeah, you know, at <laughs> some point it kind of goes oh and dan dan dan, and you're like, no, I saw that coming. Mm. Um, it's scary because it's scary you don't need to try and make that a thing Um, there's an obvious comparison to the dark half they're nothing like each other Stephen King wrote a book called the dark half conceptually a similar idea Uh, the dark half suffered from the fact that the the split personality character and the the split sort of thing can get a little bit boring because you're not focusing on one character this suffers from the same problem um, occasionally you just sit there going, oh, I kind of care about this part of the character, but I don't care about that part of the character. And I know I'm supposed to, and I feel a bit guilty about that. Um, mm. There's a lot of teenage angst in this as well. It's filled Yay! with teenage angst. Um, it almost, it's my favourite thing. If I if I open it in the middle and put it to my ear, yeah, evanescence, definitely evanescence. Uh. Um, I've actually just opened it in the middle and it's gone the self that isn't you, da da da. It, it's it's full of really really nice ideas. I really really want to like it, and I, it's one of those books that I was like, you know what, this is probably absolutely fantastic. Had I not read loads of Stephen King, now that I've read loads of Stephen King, I haven't enjoyed it as much. Yeah, ah. it's not that kind of. So it, could it be almost like it? Because is it is it young adult? It is definitely a young adult. So book. it could be a good step. To, to get you to Stephen King, if there maybe. is a if there is a, a young person in your your life or someone who isn't who isn't that well read mm. in your life, uh, and you kind of want to get them into Stephen King and Dean Koontz, this is actually a good kind a of a really good way to go. You know, you're the first one's free. This is a good 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 way mm. of getting them into it because also because it's all quite compartmentalized, you can dip in and out really easily. Mm. One of the things that I really like about and this probably won't be in the, the final version is when they sent us the, the promo version that came with two post-it notes and on the front it says I curse anyone who reads this book <laughs> and on the back it says when, when no one will believe you you'll become the liar they think you are and it's like damn, damn. it even came with this little kind of doctor's report as well which I know is just promo nonsense but it chuckled me quite a bit cause that I, is I, awesome I, like, well when the Deaf House came out Sarah Penberg book The Deaf House it was wrapped up in string with a key on it that see, I know it's one. Of, yeah, it's it's good promo, but just do it anyway. <laughs> do it on all of them. <laughs> but um, yes. So, is it any good? Yes, it's all right. Um, will you enjoy it if you like slow burn psychological horror? And um, yes, if you like teenage angst, yes. If you're at looking for action, adventure, and spaceships, why are you reading this in the first place? Why have you picked it up? It's not. <laughs> It, it, it's not supernatural style, you know. You don't expect it to, to be full of sticky monsters with knives. It's not a sticky monsters with knives story. It's not, you know, vampires not going to eat your soul. The, the, certainly, there are scary elements to it. Certainly, there are scary, we'll, we'll say, supernatural elements to it. However, it's more of a slow burn psychological thriller. I enjoyed it, um, but it's, I also enjoyed it, but also realised about Hong Kong that this is kind of not for me. It's like, I'm uh, enjoying this ride, but in, unfortunately, I think, I'm, you know, it's... So when you find but still this, invested enough to finish. Still so invested enough to finish. Still okay. But it's like when you find yourself at a pop concert and you realise that you don't like the band. Uh, <laughs> but everyone else is having fun, so you enjoy it anyway. <laughs> Maybe I'm having a good time and just didn't know. Exactly. So that is... Uh, it's on Indigo. Um, it is available... 
It's uh, in the goes uh, imprint of Orion, just in case you've been keeping skull. Uh, it's called The Dead House, and it's by Dawn Kurtigrick. And I'm very sorry if I've got your surname wrong. <laughs> the world 24 hours a day this is Fab Radio International welcome to the bookworm James Goss hello what is haters about uh, haters is a book about a man who decides to make the internet a nice, a much nicer place simply by killing all the nasty people on it. Uh, and he fails at any point to realise that this might actually be a very, very stupid idea. And he very quickly gets in over his head. Uh, and it's basically just my chance to take revenge against all the really annoying people on Facebook and Twitter. So is it a commentary on the modern day or is it just a polemic? Oh, uh, it's it's a mixture of both. Uh, it's it's obviously been um, brilliant. We all have those Facebook friends who you just stare at and go, it's been nearly 10 years of Facebook and you still don't get it. And you just think, yeah, I think the world is probably going to be better off without these people. Um, especially when you just think, oh, they've finally gone away and then all of a sudden some new game comes along and they suddenly pop up again inviting you to join and play Minecraft Candy crushed sausage hunt, and you think, oh, really? And they're also weirdly, even though they appear to have no concept of how Facebook works at all, if you ever defriend them, they notice, and you think, how? How you you use you use Facebook like it's it it's a desk jotter? Um, yes. So it's it's people like that. Um, it's people who are constantly doing charity fun runs to the point at which you're just they're going, oh, wow, just from the sheer running of your leg, I'm amazed they haven't managed to cure that really obscure disease you're constantly running marathons for. Uh, and uh, it's, it's having a go at all of those really strange online columnist people who appear to simply exist to write open letters to people who appear to have done something that's upset people on Twitter. Uh, it's basically that. But with death... Where do you think the world of social media is going to go next? I <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I, I genuinely think it's it's got very weird in the last few years as people just share more and more information. And what's odd is that... I don't know if you've noticed. I certainly have noticed that the number of people you bump into who say, Oh, I don't have a television. No, I definitely don't have a television. And yet they wouldn't think of not being on Twitter or Facebook. And we've, we've reached a stage where things like Twitter and Facebook that seemingly were created just so that people would say, oh, look, here I am on holiday. Here I am having a fun time. Here's quite a nice breakfast. Oh, I'm wondering what to have for lunch. Have just become these really strange, dominating things that are used for, for politics and for anger and, and for hatred. And they were created to be nice, but we're just using them for quite a lot of the time for nasty things. Um, and that strikes me as being really sad. But also what's strange is noticing the way that newspapers and newspaper websites uh, have gone from 
you know, just a couple of years ago, it used to be there's a definite Twitter storm happening about this thing that's happened and we're reporting it to actually there were two really mean tweets about Broadchurch last night and we're going to write an entire article about that. Uh, I don't know where this one is going, really. Um, but I can imagine that, you know, in a few years' time, it will be compulsory to post your breakfast to Twitter uh, and for people to then comment on how many calories you're having and that kind of thing. It's it's just reached the stage where we must be private, surely. God, it makes me sound like a grim old man. Doesn't that mean that we are all now writers? Don't we now have a renaissance in creativity and writing? I don't know, because one of the things that's happening is that uh, we are all now being encouraged to constantly throughout the day create a fictional version of ourselves that we are constantly reporting on. Because nobody is real online. It used to be a lot simpler. When Facebook was simply just Facebook is, it was a lot easier to go, face, you know, uh, James is thinking about where he's going to lunch, or James is in Antigua. I've never been to Antigua, but the, the thing is now we, we spend so much time constructing these fake online identities for ourselves, or slightly fake online identities. We're, we're never quite how we appear to be online. We're never quite true, and there's there's this increasing disparity that you see between how lives really are uh, and how lives aren't. One of one of my uh, very very distant Facebook friends uh, has, as far as I know, you know, over the last year has been having quite a lovely time, lots of meals, lots of everything, good holidays, stuff like that. And then the other week, post to say, just so that you all know, I've been in a full-time mental institution for the last nine months. And you think, what? That doesn't fit. And you now have, I, you genuinely, it's kind of like a twist in a book where you go, I have no idea where this Facebook friend is going now. Um, we've all become unreliable narrators of our own lives. Why are geeky things back on the rise? That is, it is fascinating. Uh, I think in many ways, you know, when I, when I was growing up and watching Doctor in the 1980s, what, how brilliant it was to feel so lonely and miserable. Um, you know, that, that wonderful feeling where sort of at the start of the 80s, all of your friends talked about Doctor every night, and then by the middle of the 80s, you were the only person who still cared. And I think it would have been, you know, there was that joy of discovering there was one other person at school who still watched Doctor Who, and even though the two of you didn't necessarily like each other that much, you had to be friends because you were the only people who watched it. And it meant so much when a friend who was in the rugby team went, oh, I watched Dot 2 last night. It wasn't as dreadful as it has been. He didn't use the word dreadful, but you know what I mean. Um, and I think in some ways it would have been brilliant if there was uh, Facebook and Twitter just so that you knew that there were other people who were still watching the program that you cared about and you still thought was wonderful. But at the same time, poor John Nathan Turner, the producer in the 1980s, if there'd been Facebook and Twitter, he would have been... You know, there were, camp there were campaigns against the man even in the 1980s when he was genuinely doing his best for the programme at a time when nobody else at the BBC cared. And the poor man would have been hounded out of his job. Um, you look at what's happening to a figure like Jeremy Clarkson, who's much more controversial. Um, but the same thing would have happened to uh, John Nathan Turner. You know, the, the first week that Doctor Who started on television there were campaigns for Russell T. Davis to leave. And you saw them cropping up online. You just thought, that's very strange. Yeah, it's, it seems to be one of the fundamental things about some Doctor Who fans is that they are never happy. Um, and it's, 
it, it's odd. It's it's almost like dogs greeting each other in in the streets. The way that if you meet a Doctor Who fan who you've never met before, they will start talking about where they think it, the show has gone wrong or where they think the show's gone right. And uh, yes, oh my God, poor old William Hartnell. Imagine the 1960s. You know, um, an episode goes out where William Hartnell perhaps wasn't on the top of his game with the script. And that, that would have been, oh, the gifts. Wow. Can you imagine all the gifts? That would have been amazing. So, yes. Tell us about City of Death. I'm very excited because uh, I did spend a lot of my career when I was at the BBC doing the Doctor website, just basically going, 14-year-old me would be very happy with what I'm doing as a grown-up right now. You know, I'm running the BBC's Doctor Who website. I'm the only person who's employed at the BBC working on Doctor Who. That's brilliant. And then a few years later going, oh, my God, they brought it back to television. 14-year-old me would be very happy. Um, Oh, wow, I've been on the set of the TARDIS. 14-year-old me would be very happy. And then a few years later going, I've written a Doctor Who book. 14-year-old me would be very happy. Now, I think if I popped back and said to 14-year-old me, I have novelized City of Death. I have written a book that Douglas Adams was honestly about any, any day now was about to write, possibly. Um, and then Gareth Roberts was going to write. And the idea that I'm third choice for something after Douglas Adams and Gareth Roberts, 14-year-old me would be a bit sort of, it's all right, you can relax. Go and have your own life now. Um, but yes, I've got, to, I've got to novelize City of Death, which is one of the greatest Doctor Who stories ever. Um, and that's a really lovely feeling. Really, really lovely feeling. I got to spend every day for months last year waking up, being unable to wait to start get to work um which is just brilliant and it happens ever so rarely in life that that thing where you go to bed dreaming about the work you've done and then you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and do some extra work because you had so much fun doing work um yes working on city of death was just brilliant uh and i hope that when people read it they enjoy it i really do hope they enjoy it what challenges and difficulties do you face following in the footsteps of someone like douglas adams it's so difficult um, because one of the problems with novelizing City of Death is that, uh, for a start, this is a book that hopefully will be read by people who aren't Doctor Who fans. They may never have read a Doctor Who book. They may have uh, read everything by Douglas Adams, but they've never read a Doctor Who book. So you're writing for a slightly different audience, but you're also aware that every single Doctor Who fan who picks that book up has been laughing at the jokes in City of Death since they first saw it on the television. You also have the problem that the television version of City of Death is so perfect, so nearly as perfect as a te- as televised Doctor Who can be, that you have the thing with the book where, um, you know, it's not like the novelization of something like The Ark from William Hartnell, where everybody got to pick up the novel and go, oh oh, this is much better than the television version could possibly have been. How interesting, how exciting. You've got the thing with the novel of City of Death that you're going to be picking it up, turning the page and going, oh. And, and that's the big challenge, to try and keep people turning the pages, even though they are aware of what it's like on the television. And you have to be very faithful to the television version, whilst at the same time providing something that is sufficiently different that people aren't going, one, why am I not watching this right now? Why am I wasting my time reading this book? And two making sure that uh, they're actually having a good experience reading it, whilst, whilst being aware that all those brilliantly funny lines, if you're a new reader to City of Death, 
you're laughing at them. And if you've seen the television version of City of Death, you're still going, that's still a funny line. Because my terror is somebody going through the book with a pencil, ticking all of the funny lines and making sure that they're still as funny as they were on screen. That's my terror. And please don't do that when you read it. Um, the other the other thing, just quickly as a sidebar, is just the um, how different the text I had to work with from what was on screen. Because I got sent, uh, Justin Richards had amazingly managed to unearth the original rehearsal scripts, which have masses of extra material in, but also different lines. And so at every stage, there was the there was just making a choice of, do I go for the line that was on screen or the line that's equally funny but very different in the original script? Uh, and so hopefully there will be a few times when people are turning the page and, and will go, oh, that's, that's wrong, or is it wrong? It's very different. And I think part of my job is to provide... Um, to make some different choices, which hopefully are the correct different choices. There you go, full stop, breath. What's happening with your stage play version of the Dirk Gently books? Um, the stage play of Dirk is, is weird, uh, and it's lovely that you brought that up. Um, you know, I was talking about visiting Teenage Me. It was, I worked on that with a friend at school, um, and... What was great was that we did it at school, we did it at university several times, and Douglas came every time and was so lovely. Uh, and he always said, oh, oh, I like, I like this version of my book. Um, you really, we really should get that printed. We'll work on it. We'll work on it at some point. And we never quite got around to it, but it's still being performed, and it's still genuinely being performed a couple of times around the world every year. It travels far more than I do, and I'm terribly jealous of a play that I wrote when I was a teenager. Um, but uh, this year is interesting uh, because the person who I wrote the play with, Arvind David, he is the executive producer who is developing Dirk Gently for television in America and is running the IDW comic series. Uh, so Arvind is doing very well in life, uh, as he deserves to do, because he has all the people skills and does skateboarding and stuff. Uh, and finally, thanks to uh, Arvind and uh, Douglas's agents, uh, the uh, Dirk the Play is being printed properly this year because we have spent years just sending Microsoft Word documents to people uh, whenever they ask for a copy of the play. And somebody's gone, you've sent a lot of those out. We should probably... Um, and it's lovely to see that. And, you know, should I ever be able to travel back in time, see teenage me, and be able to say, well, for one thing... Doctor Who's coming back, and you'll really like it. But also to go, and look, look, you have a book. That team, that play you wrote, look, it's finally printed. So that's a lovely thing. If you only had one book for company, what would it be? Oh, um, The Arabian Nights, because I never finish it. Uh, I've been reading The Arabian Nights for years, and there's so much of it, and it's so brilliant. So it would be The Arabian Nights. Simpsons or Futurama? Uh, Futurama. The ability to always be in the right place at the right time, or the power to travel in time. Oh, time travel, because then I would buy an awful lot of property when it was cheap. Truth or beauty? Oh, interesting. I'd say beauty. James Goss, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Ed. Thank you. We got to talk to James Goss. He was lovely. We mostly talked about hit ours, which I absolutely adored, and we also talked about Doctor Who. This is Fab Radio International. FabRadioInternational.com. 
So the book I'm reviewing uh, with you today is Wool by Hugh Howie. Um, Wool is the first in a trilogy. Um, the other two books are called Shift and they're called Dust. It's quite helpful, though, because on all the copies I've seen, the numbers are really big on the spine. So you can't or shouldn't be able to accidentally start on the wrong one, um, which is a thing that can quite often happen in trilogies. And I have fallen pro to myself a, a couple of times. Um, normally, when I try and think about reviewing a book the first thing I think of when I'm done is what was this story and actually that's a really really hard question to answer with this book um it's I'd say it's a continuous narrative but there are a couple of stories kind of within it um but I recently found out why in a conversation with Ed because uh, you were saying about originally it was like a serial he, affair, he, wasn't he it? brought in that serial affair. He was a he was online. Um, Hugh Harry is a, a big advocate of getting your stuff out there and online. And with Wall, he started telling it his short, essentially short stories in a kind of almost a Dickens esque way mm. to, to to kind of you know feeding his growing audience. And it made so much sense um, because I mean, like I said, like it, there is a continuous story throughout Wall, um, but at the very beginning it is definitely made up of parts and when you said that it just all clicked and, and made so much sense um at first i was like oh maybe it's is it the story of finding a new sheriff uh for a silo which i'll explain in a minute um is it the story of new sheriff settling in and it's it was it was really hard and i was like oh no maybe it's the story of a society um and how that society works but I was, oh, there's so many things it could be I mean in a nutshell um, it's a post-apocalyptic story where a small base of humanity I'm assuming has been saved um, but a small a small number of people are living underground in a silo um, and the world is dead and like you, you can't go outside and the kind of the there's so much to it it's really it is really hard to nutshell it basically but um because at first i was like maybe it's the story of the silo but actually having read it i think i think the silo is a character personally um i like it when actually when there's a place or a thing is part of the world and part of the character and part of the yeah where where it goes um i think with wool it's one of those it's just one of those really sad kind of post-apocalyptic stories yeah because part of me was like oh like i think that some people would maybe refer to it as dystopian and i think that would be a mistake a dystopian novel is or a dystopian story is the story of someone who tried to or something or just yeah basically a perfect world was attempted but you cannot give humanity perfect and it goes wrong um this isn't that it's not about a perfect world that's gone wrong. It's just about a community living in kind of quite a, a set way almost. So things like um, in, in this silo, the way that the world works, uh, you, you grow up, um, you shadow a profession, and then when that person passes away, you you kind of you're the next in line for it almost i mean you're not going to shadow them all that time you could be sh you could be doing that for like 50 years but you you step into a profession you work through that profession 
Um, but those decisions are made like quite early on. Um, women are given a birth control implant at a very young age. Um, and when a person dies, a lottery starts and married couples are entered into the lottery. And if you win the lottery, your wife's implant will be removed for one year. And you have uh, you, you basically you live in hope that pregnancy will occur in that year. And the dream is that it's twins. And that's really nice. That's kind of the world that has been created. But that's not the story. <laughs> that's not what the story is about. Um, it's it's amazing. I think that's how kind of then I was just like, I actually don't think I can pinpoint what this story is, especially because the the turns that the story take, I don't want to say twists, like the turns and where the story goes is not is not what you want to tell people who haven't read it. <laughs> for me, because I read the first first one. Yeah. And, and my feeling on, on Wall was because I read it very quickly because I was the, the, the the way it happened to me with, with Will, I was told, Ed, you're interviewing Hugh Howie on stage in front of about 400 people uh, tomorrow. Like, <laughs> tomorrow. I, I've not read his book. And they were like, well, we can send you a PDF, but you won't have time. It's like, I will have time. It's fine. It's a three-hour journey. I'll, I'll, I'll pile for it. So I was sitting there driving to Wales. Um, obviously, I wasn't reading while I was driving. Someone else was driving. Uh, <laughs> and I, reading reading as heading towards it and to me it's it's like a dystopian so it's not dystopian i know what you mean yeah but it's like a very specific soap opera set in a, the least ideal place yeah you have most most soap operas are set in somewhere either nice or interesting mm. whereas they've decided just to devastate it's so interesting because like a lot of post-apocalyptic stories are about like saving humanity um survival or they're the story about how you've come to be in the place that you are. And wool is none of those things. Um, in the sense that humanity has got silo. Like, the silo is functioning. Um, it's not about what occurred. And it's, I mean, to the extent that the people in the silo think that that's what life is. Um, there's religion based around it. They think, like, silo was... silo. The silo is a creation of God. Um, outside, they know outside is poisonous, and they know outside you die. Um, to the to the extent that it's it's become the taboo, um, the big taboo is to like nobody even says the words like outside or outdoors. They know it exists because there's sensors and cameras, and they're constantly monitoring to see if kind of the situation in the atmosphere has changed. Um, but you, it's like forbidden to even contemplate going outside. Um, to say you want to go outside is punish punishable by capital punishment and capital punishment is being sent outside to clean and your job is you put on a little suit that keeps the heat and the toxins out um, but the heat and the toxins are so bad that it's not going to keep them out forever and your job is to go outside and clean the sensors and clean the cameras so that people can still see what is there and what is there is a hill and clouds but people, so that is the, that is the capital punishment: is you go outside, you clean the sensors, until eventually the atmosphere gets you, and you lie down. You don't get very far, unfortunately. You lie down on the hill that the sensors can see, and and that is kind of where you you perish. Um, it's it's such an amazingly interesting story that you kind of can't tell someone about who hasn't read it. It's really it's yeah. You see, for me the. The, the, this sort of story and this sort of kind of post-apocalyptic sadness 
um, was forever twisted in my mind when I was quite young because I read when I was quite young I read Brave New World and I, I read 1984 and I read Wii and I read, oh. all these, read all of these books and I kind of you know this kind of anti-utopian anti-utopian mm. rather than dystopian, yeah anti-utopian, anti-utopian. Um, these kind of anti-utopian stories and yet I then read I then played this game called Paranoia which is imagine <laughs> sounds brilliant <laughs> Imagine Saturday Night Live had done a comedy version of Wool. It's best way to describe Paranoia. Okay. Whereas, in, uh, whereas there's actually an AI in Paranoia, which tells you what to do. One of the things it, t- it tells you is that uh, disobeying a computer is, is punishable by death. Happiness is mandatory. Are you happy, citizen? <laughs> the beatings will continue until morale improves. And, and that's the gag. And I think for me, with all, with anything that's anti-utopian, the memory of water is the same sort of uh, mm. direction. It's weird, actually. That, um, uh, so many anti-utopian end of the world stories are doing are really popular right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Station Eleven's the same sort of. Yeah, mm. I, I would compare Station Eleven. Station Eleven is the world is ended due to disease, and the, you have this tiny community traveling from one end of the world to the other end of the world mm. to, to do their own thing. I will throw it at you, actually. It's quite good. Um, but I think it's... I liked it. I think it's awesome. But dramatic book is dramatic. It is intense. And while, like, the every story you have pitches and troughs, and, yeah, the the emotions do that. You're not always sad. You're not always happy. But the intensity, it is always intense. Um, it is, I would say, not a book for just before bed unless you have another book that you can wind down with for a few pages afterwards. It's really hard to to put down and so you're either not going to sleep uh because you're still reading or you're not going to sleep because your head is going what so so read it but then have a copy of i don't know the beano next yeah time. yeah absolutely but um no, my, my partner just i'd be making noise all the time and he'd be like what and i'd be like book um and just you do just the amount of times i throw it down and be like what and you just usually you rage at it um it's it's a brilliant brilliant read and needs needs time the voices are fantastic Everyone has a voice. Every single character has a voice, a specific voice within a few lines, and that's difficult to achieve. So, who is it? Oh, it it was Wool by Hugh Howey, and it's um, oh, I've literally, I've, I even wrote down who it was. Arrow Books. (laughs) Well done, me. Every time I hear that piece of theme music, my brain just goes, we've got a steampunk revolution uh, going on. So, yeah. So, we have talked about uh, a young adult book about a a very disturbed young lady, and we've talked about wool, and... (laughs) Yes. What is the theme of this show? I think. I think is it being a bit sad. Oh, it might be. I think the theme is being a bit sad. I think being a bit sad, a bit scared, because I do think there's certain levels of psychological thriller to Wool as well. Like there's a there's a, but not in the same way. It's more about I think you do a lot of ah, how would I feel and 
what would I do and stuff. It's a reflective one, I think. The thing I found with uh, the with dead the house, house um, <laughs> is I felt I felt really sorry for the main character, and I felt really you know I, it took me a while to build my sympathy up for the main character with all the things that were happening to them and all the things that were you know making that their, their life a misery. But that was a. It's very much a coming of age novel. It's very much a. Mm. You know, she's trying to change her world, and she doesn't know why her world can't change, and she doesn't know what's constraining her. Whereas with 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 wool, they've embraced their straitjacket. Yeah, I think wool, uh, rather than a coming of age, I'd say wool is like a fish out of water story. It's about. Like because most stories, if we're if we're creating a world that is not the world the reader is going to know, we need a character to which this world is new. Um, and obviously, in the silo, that's where they've lived. No one is new to the silo. So what they've done is taken a character out of the world she lives in because she's from the down deep in mechanical, and they've brought her to the up top. And it's like so they've they've changed where she is in that world, and that's how we learn about it. Um, since yeah, I'd say that one's fish out of water, rather than a coming of age. I mean, Hugh Howe is a very interesting character within the publishing industry mm. because he was a very successful self-published author via the internet, and then Random Penguin got their hands on him, and he became you know he became even more promoted. I mean, you know, they they even drove the the poor chap to the middle of Wales to be interviewed by me. I mean, for goodness' <laughs> sake, you know, he was on a proper big kind of tour. Mm. Um, they really did promote the heck out of that book but he's very much a, an advocate of the small press and it's some really interesting really nice writing because um, I don't know if it's something that I've really talked about on the show before but I really like words I think words are wonderful and some of his word use is really beautiful just little, like, when I read there'll be like little standout sentences that make me go oh and even if like the thing that's happening is awful it's like that's nice that's a nice sentence and like so a couple of them from wool was like she ran as fast as she could concentrating on throwing her boots forward lunging for more floor gobbling it up it's like that's a wonderful like the idea of hunger for space is awesome and hunger for like speed and i I loved that um and then just this tiny little nice one the darkness accepted her as she climbed over the security gate (laughs) yeah it's like it's just it's a tiny sentence. Neither of those are even in, in, like important, but they're just beautiful. And I think that's a that's a wonderful writer. And so, if he's an interesting man as well, I approve of Hugh Howie. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're running out of show. We are. We are very much running out of show. So, um, well, it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune uh, and Dell. Cheers, everyone. are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for it. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Rebecca Derrick. Produced by A.L. Johnson.